Hi, Arjun Lozada here. Before we start, the Making Contact team would like to thank all of the donors who came through for us for the end of the year. With your help, we'll continue with incisive and critical programming for the next four years and beyond. And now, here's the show. This week on Making Contact. It's difficult to comprehend how eight years ago, after the election of Barack Obama, the national conversation was whether or not the U.S. was going to become a post-racial society. Eight years later, any fantasy about the United States being a post-racial society has gone up in flames with the ascendance of Donald Trump to the highest office in the country. Is White Lash enough of an explainer for the rise of President-elect Donald Trump? Is it rigorous enough to blame the people who didn't show up to vote for our impending collective struggle under this administration? On this edition, we hear from Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, Associate Professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Dr. Taylor most recently wrote, From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. We'll be sharing a talk with Dr. Taylor's insights on Black liberation as framed through this most recent election. I'm RJ Lozada, your host this week on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Hey there. Thank you. I'm going to talk about some of the themes in my book, but I'm going to try to do so within the context of the catastrophe, the election of Donald Trump. It's difficult to comprehend how eight years ago, after the election of Barack Obama, the national conversation was whether or not the U.S. was going to become a post-racial society. Forbes magazine ran an editorial with the headline, Racism in America is Over. Eight years later, any fantasy about the United States being a post-racial society has gone up in flames with the ascendance of Donald Trump to the highest office in the country. Trump ran his campaign on a vile mix of fake economic populism with the worst and most naked race-baiting and demonization of oppressed people seen in a presidential election, probably since Goldwater, Barry Goldwater, in 1964. He referred to Mexican immigrants as rapists, drug dealers, and criminals. He seamlessly conflated Islam with terrorism, at one point favorably retelling a false story about an American general dipping bullets in pig's blood before murdering Muslim soldiers as a worthy strategy in the ongoing and misnamed War on Terror. He has defended the use of racial profiling and advocated it as a national policing strategy. When you take these statements and include at least some of the people he is nominating to be included in his cabinet, then what we are talking about is a dramatic shift from the optics of the nation's first black president and a black family living in the White House to an administration that will be openly hostile to the most basic aspirations of black people. Trump's first act as president-elect, for example, was to hire Steve Bannon, who has bragged about his associations with the so-called alt-right, or as we used to say, white supremacists, as his chief strategist. So we are about as far from post-racial as you can possibly be in this country. And it is reasonable to expect that if and when Trump cannot deliver on his promises to bring jobs back to the United States 
or when massive tax breaks to the rich don't equate into a higher standard of living for ordinary people, that he and his cabal of racist rogues and reactionaries will double down on racism as an explanation. And so how did this happen, that we have gone from the nation's first black president to an openly racist billionaire who is surrounded by bigots? Many people have described it in a way that I would describe as simplistic. The best example of this, I think, is Van Jones, who has described Trump's victory as a, quote, white lash against black voters, almost characterizing Trump's victory as revenge for the election of Obama in 2008. A related version of this assessment is expressed when people compare the rise of Trump to the end of Reconstruction and the reemergence of Republicans as the period of redemption when white supremacy became the actual law of the land and Jim Crow was imposed. There is a lot of history to unpack there, but it really is a simple rendering of a more recent history that conveniently leaves the Democratic Party unscathed while dramatically overstating the depths of conservatism, racism, and reaction in the country. The first problem with this narrative is that it promotes a mistaken story that African Americans somehow have benefited from the presence of Barack Obama in the White House, and those benefits have come at the expense of ordinary white people. This is a story that has no basis in reality. African Americans continue to experience unemployment at twice the rate of whites, and a shocking 55% of black workers, mostly black women, make under $15 an hour. It was precisely the inability of the Obama administration to improve the conditions of ordinary black people that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. This is the thin gruel working class and poor black Americans have received from two terms of Obama. The second problem with the white lash story is that it overstates the depths of white racism and conservatism while simultaneously underestimating the white opposition to the Trump agenda. We certainly don't want to downplay the extent to which racism played a critical role in Trump's success. We have seen how Trump's rise has unleashed violent white supremacists and given them the confidence to organize out in the open. There have been well over a thousand cases of hate crimes reported since the election, a number higher than even in the aftermath of 9-11. So it cannot be underestimated. But it should not also be overstated. For example, there are numbers that disrupt the narrative of a generalized right-wing sweep across the United States with white people universally lining up behind Trump, waiting to receive their marching orders. 58% of Americans, all Americans, think Obamacare should be replaced with federally funded health care for all. Most Americans support raising the minimum wage. 69% of Americans believe that providing affordable housing is important. 63% of Americans say money and wealth distribution is unfair. 53% of white people think the country still has work to do for, quote, blacks to achieve equal rights with whites. So how do we square this with the election itself? We must begin with the fact 
that tens of millions of Americans didn't vote at all. But in the larger scope of things, it means that only one in four eligible voters chose Trump. This is hardly representative of what, quote, white people think, and it's hardly representative of a right-wing sweep across the country. But when your political choices are constrained within the parameters of the existing two-party system, voter discontent can go in one of three places, your party, the other party, or no party. American politics is always a dance between the three. In this case, the line of reasoning that blames the loss of the Democratic Party solely on Fox News, FBI letters, race baiting, bad messaging, or the evil Russians means that there is no accounting or reckoning with the political shortcomings of the party. None of those explanations actually address how the party failed to connect with the basic ideas of fairness and justice that are at the core of those statistics that I read off. Instead, the Democrats ran on the idea that Trump was just too negative, he wouldn't be a good role model, when in fact, according to Hillary Clinton, America is already great. It was a message that was and remains completely out of touch with the reality experienced by millions of Americans. But when it's the Democrats who have been in power for eight years, overseeing the numbing inequity and injustice of the status quo, it made it difficult for them to argue for a radically different political agenda. Clinton promised to be the third term of Obama, failing to realize that for millions of voters, two terms was enough. Eight years ago, Obama ran on the promise of hope and change, but from the beginning, he seemed to be more interested in cultivating an image of bipartisan agreement with the Republicans instead of using his mandate to push an agenda based around the demands and needs of the black and Latino working class voters who were responsible for putting him into office. For his first full year in office, Obama had a supermajority in Congress and squandered it. It's exactly the reason why the Democrats lost control of Congress in the first place. So with big expectations and big hope come even bigger disappointment when you fail to deliver. Embedded inside of every right-wing backlash is the failure of the liberal establishment to deliver an alternative or a better way. You cannot understand the emergence of Richard Nixon without understanding the failures of the Johnson administration. From the incompleteness and inadequacy of the war on poverty and the great society to the debacle of the Vietnam War. You cannot understand the rise of Ronald Reagan without understanding the failure of the Carter administration to address rising inflation, cripplingly high interest rates, and the erosion of working-class living standards in general. In other words, the lesser evil always cuts the path for the greater evil. Where Obama used the machinery and logic of deportations to banish 2.5 million people from the United States, it has set the stage for Trump to do this in an even larger way. Where the Obama administration embraced the values of so-called choice and privatization and gutting public education, Trump will do it in an even more fantastical way that finishes the job of attempting to kill public education in this country. 
Obama's failure to deliver any significant reforms for working class and poor people made a mockery of his attempts to tell people to vote for him in order to secure his legacy. In the insistence of liberals to defend this agenda with only the most scant whiff of criticism leads to their own paralysis when the right does the same thing, but just on a larger scale. We'll hear more from Dr. Kianga Yamada-Taylor in a few moments. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information on this program, please visit us at radioproject.org. If you visit our website, you'll find a vast array of content in our archives. And now, back to Dr. Taylor. But there are other ways to measure discontent beyond polls and election results. We saw the first wave of discontent with Obama's rule with the emergence of the Occupy movement in 2011 and then the eruption of Black Lives Matter in the summer of 2014. Both were products of the widening gap of inequality in the United States. That inequality was at the heart of the Occupy movement and its popularization of class inequality in the U.S. through the slogan of the 99% versus the 1%. But this inequality was also important in how we understand the emergence of Black Lives Matter. Black Americans, of course, took the brunt of the economic crisis in 2007 and 2008. It was in part how we understand the deep wells of support that existed for Obama and his campaign's ability to tap into the anger with the federal government's abject disregard for what was happening in black communities. We cannot understand, for example, the social catastrophe happening across black Chicago where there will be 700 homicides in that city, the vast majority of which affect young black people. You cannot understand that social catastrophe without understanding the persisting effects of the economic crisis that never really ended in many black communities. Chicago has the third highest black unemployment rate of any major city in this country. It has the third highest poverty rate of a large city in the United States. Its black middle class is being gutted because of municipal, state, federal budget cuts that have wiped out public sector jobs in postal work, teaching, and other positions that have historically been the bedrock of black economic stability. The breakdown of this civic infrastructure in combination with the existing crisis of mass incarceration and what Michelle Alexander has called the new Jim Crow The persistence of unemployment and underemployment and of under-resourced public services and institutions has created the pretext for deepening police presence in black communities and as a result, exacerbating all of the conditions that justify the presence of the police in the first place. As living conditions in black communities have become harder, the police have been given license to respond with arrests and brutality. And while the emergence of Black Lives Matter has exposed the extent to which violent policing is institutionalized in this country, it nevertheless continues. The police are on pace to kill 1,200 people this year, more than last year when newspapers first begin to count. And substantively, 
more than the 928 a year the FBI had been suggesting as an average two years earlier. If you want to understand why the black vote was depressed compared to 2008 and 2012, it can be found in the inability of the American government to aggressively intervene and prevent the murder of black citizens by the state. Whether it's with the policing of black communities or the water crisis in Flint, the expectation that black Americans would be a firewall for Clinton was as offensive as it was reflective of a kind of liberal contempt for the daily struggles of working class and poor people. There is just the expectation that no matter what is happening in your life and how terrible things might be, and no matter how unresponsive the Democratic Party may be, you still have to vote for them. And then the bitterness directed at people when they don't respond in such a way is even more contemptuous. This is true when liberals blame depressed black voter turnout for the election results, but it is also the case when they blame working class whites from, quote, voting against their interests, as if somehow voting for the neoliberal yet civil politics of the Democratic Party are in the interest of the working class. And as an aside... Working class interests are never on the ballot in bourgeois elections. But when it comes to the fate of ordinary white people, who despite the media and academic fascination with for the moment, these are people who are also regularly ignored. We have heard all sorts of dime store psychology about the so-called white working class, most of it thinly veiled elitism. White workers feel entitled, they are only interested in themselves, they are privileged, they are racist scum, they are just bad. In total, it reflects the political establishment's contempt for the struggles of regular people. If you only read these reports or assessments, you would think there was no inequality experienced by white working class people, or that ordinary white people were just living the high life. But when we consider the experiences of white working class people within the context of the attacks on working class standards in general, we get a different picture. And what would happen if we told the story of black Chicago and other black communities across this country as part of the same story of what is happening to ordinary white people? For example, there is the continuing crisis of opioid or narcotic addiction in this country. While people are quick to point out how differently it is received compared to the war on drugs directed at black communities in the 1980s and 90s, which is undoubtedly true, what does this crisis at this particular moment in time tell us about the conditions of working class life and working class people? There are two million people addicted to opioids in the U.S. Half of those people are addicted to heroin. Earlier this year, it was reported that there had been a decline in the life expectancy for white women and a plateauing of life expectancy for white men. In the U.S. peer countries, life expectancy is growing. Why is life expectancy for white women in decline in this country? drug overdose, suicide, and alcohol abuse. So if we told the stories 
of the destruction of working class black life alongside the stories of the destruction of working class white life, it could allow us to see that the anxieties, stresses, confusions, and frustrations about life in the world today are not owned by one group, but are shared by many. It would not tell us that everyone suffers the same oppression or exploitation, but it would allow us to see that even if we don't experience a particular kind of oppression, every working person in this country is going through something. Everyone is trying to figure out how to survive, and many are failing. If we put these stories together, we would gain more insight into how the white working class and poor have as much stake in the fight for a different kind of society as anyone else. We wouldn't so casually dismiss their suffering as privilege because they do not suffer as much as black and brown people in this country. The privileges of white skin run very thin in a country where 19 million white people languish in poverty. Apparently, the wages of whiteness are not so great to stop millions of ordinary white people from literally drinking and drugging themselves to death to escape the despair of living in this so-called greatest country on earth. If we put these separate stories together into a single story, we could make better sense of why socialism is rising in popularity, why people have taken to the streets over the last five years to protest the growing racial and economic inequality in this country. 51% of 18 to 29-year-olds say they are against capitalism, even if they are not fully convinced of what should replace it. 47% agreed that basic necessities such as food and shelter are, quote, a right that the government should provide to those unable to afford them. In the 1970s, 61% of Americans fell into that vague but stable category of middle class. Today, that number has fallen to 50%. It is driven by the growing wealth inequality that exists here. In general, the richest 20% of households in the U.S. own 84% of the wealth in this country while the bottom 40% own less than 1%. In other words, there are 400 billionaires in this country. They are the reason why there are 47 million poor people. You cannot have untold obscene wealth unless you have untold obscene poverty. That is the law of the market. And how does such a tiny percent of the population unjustly hold on to their wealth even when millions agree that it should be redistributed. Racism, immigrant bashing, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, nationalism. They get us to fight each other while they hoard their wealth. Our stories are not all the same. We do not all have the same experiences, but our hardships often emanate from the same source a market-based economy that privileges the wealthy over the welfare and lives of the people who create that wealth. And they keep our stories separate from each other so that we never understand the entire story, only our particular part of it. But even with great effort to keep our side divided and confused, 
Millions of people are coming to grips with the harsh reality of an economic system that guarantees them nothing but a future of hardship and an inability to ever get ahead. But the knowledge alone of the existence of racism, inequality, poverty, and injustice does not necessarily equip our side with the political tools needed to fight the battles of today or to fight for a socialist future. We need struggle. We also need politics because we must contend with a political establishment that wants to lower our expectations to believe that the existing society is the best that we can expect from humanity. That we dare not think beyond the existing parameters of electing a Democrat or Republican to change the world we live in. Clinton lost in part because she ran a campaign of low expectations, a campaign that cynically pivoted around the notion that ordinary people shouldn't ask for too much and that we must be realistic about the possibilities. Donald Trump promised to change the world, and Hillary Clinton promised to make the trains run on time. Bernie Sanders, for all of the excitement that his campaign generated for rightly demanding more, his commitment to remaining in the Democratic Party has effectively neutered his political revolution. Expecting the Democratic Party to fight for the democratic redistribution of wealth and resources in this country is like expecting to squeeze orange juice out of an apple. No, we must build independent organizations and political parties that are not connected to the Democratic Party, that don't rise and fall with the electoral cycle. We have to build organizations that are democratic, multiracial, and militant with a foundation in solidarity. Solidarity meaning that even if you don't experience a particular oppression, it doesn't matter because you understand that as ordinary people, our fates are connected and that one group's liberation is dependent on the liberation of all of the oppressed and exploited. And there are so many good examples of this happening now. And that's important when we look at the intense political polarization that exists we can see what an emboldened right can do. It becomes a source of attraction for people who are frustrated about the conditions that they face and the uncertainty that exists in the world. But it also produces a response from the left. It is not an overstatement to say that in the last month, tens of thousands of ordinary people took to the streets, black people, Muslims, Latinos, Arabs, Asians, Native people, and white people to reject the election, to reject Trump, and to reject racism. At high schools and college campuses across the country, students walked out of classes and began to organize to declare their campuses sanctuaries for undocumented students and others that Trump has threatened to use the power of the state to abuse. There is a spirit of solidarity that is beginning to take root. Consider the story of Natasha Nakama, a black woman who is a student at Baylor University in Texas. The morning after the election, as she walked to class, a white male student bumped her and said, quote, no niggers allowed on the sidewalk. When another white student confronted him, the assailant replied, quote, I'm just trying to make America great again. 
Two days later, when Natasha left her dorm for the same class, she was surprised to find 300 classmates, professors, and administrators that had gathered to walk her to class to keep her safe. That is what solidarity looks like. That is what we have to build on. That is the future of our movement. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to KPFA for hosting and recording Kianga Yamada-Taylor. If you are still trying to wrap your head around the very concept of liberal contempt and the black vote, and why white lash is an underwhelming argument, share this very episode with a friend, or maybe a person you don't see eye to eye with, and talk about it. You can also point them to our webpage, where you can download our past programs, or to subscribe to our podcast at radioproject.org. Lisa Rudman is our executive director, Marie Che, Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez are our producers, Sabine Blazan is our audience engagement manager, and I'm RJ Lozada. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>